Um, we're probably going to finish up church history tonight and uh, get if anything past tonight would be church future. So uh, <laughs> I'll have to wait a little while and then pick it up again. But, uh, you know, we've come a long way in it. And, and one of the things I want to accomplish out of this, and I've, I've really uh, taken the time to uh, probably do this in a more concise way than I've ever done it before. Uh, purposely, I want to try to get it into some kind of a handbook, like uh, the uh, How to Study the Bible book. I'd like to develop it. You know, Joe's been doing an outline of it, and I'd like to kind of uh, put it together in a series of chapters uh, where uh, we could uh, get it out where it would become like a handbook on church history. And I think that uh, all the information that we need is in it. And uh, so uh, hopefully that we can we can do that and uh, get that going. You'll have to have to have some of you help me with it because there's no way I, I have the expertise or the time to do that. But I'd like to uh, get that organized and get it going. And uh, those of you who have been through the class probably have a better handle on it than somebody that didn't. So put that in the back of your mind. Last week we uh, really started the final phase of, of, of church history, which uh, is, the, is our own 20th century. And I know we're in the 21st century, but the 20th century was a very uh, interesting uh, time uh, from Christianity, at least from my standpoint. Uh, looking back on it, you, it, things make a lot of sense when you understand church history. I don't think a Christian will ever have a real appreciation uh, of the Bible or where he's at or what uh, he has or what God has done without church history. And it's a shame that, you know, most Christians never get that. But, uh, you know, God's hand is, is always down through history. And you've seen now uh, so many things come to light uh, through church history that make sense in everything else in life. And uh, last time we began to, went back and we saw how that, you know, the three, three main Baptist churches uh, got corrupted. And it all goes back to what we talked about when we started church history, uh, uh, about the, knee, or not really starting church history, but starting uh, the 1900s when we talked about the neo-Orthodox and the neo-evangelical and the charismatic movement. Those three were, uh, along with the, uh, the Sinaiticus and Vatus Canis, Westcott and Hort, uh, all of those things together is really what the devil used to bring an end to uh, what was going on in the Philadelphian church age. And, uh, you know, again, Sunday we talked about huh, the great concept of God's remnant, and that is such a great concept uh, to understand down through history and understand where you're at today. And uh, it's something that just has always been wherever you've had God in the church, you've always had a minority of people who, who stuck with it while everybody else did not. And, uh, you know, the, last week we talked about the beginning of J. Frank Norris. And uh, Norris really is a guy who, through the first part of the 20th century, makes sure that, you know, we have a Bible. And uh, we talked about uh, the, how he came out of the Southern Baptist Church. Uh, he was a very unique individual, and uh, he really he really sets the stage. He died in 1952, I believe, and he really sets the stage uh, for where it's going to go. And he really handed off the Bible to 
uh, the believers that were going to make up the final remnant. And, you know, up to that point, and I mentioned this last week, there was no independent Baptist movement. There was no uh, fundamental movement. That word comes from J. Frank Norse. In fact, in 1927, when he broke with the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, this is where the word gets coined. He put out a newspaper called the Searchlight Fundamentalist. And uh, he, in every sense of the word, was, uh, you know, standing on the fundamentals of the Bible. And, of course, with him, it was the King James Bible. And, uh, you know, he's a t- his approach of, of, of no nonsense and tell it like it is, and obviously he was attacked uh, by the by the learned crowd, by the scholarly crowd, by for his unprofessionalism, and uh, you know uh, he he really, 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 really was a unique individual. One of the things you're going to find, and most people are so shallow in their thinking, uh, you know, one of the things you're going to find that when God, it takes a unique kind of guy for God to use, like J. Frank Norris and and, and Peter Uckman. Um, you can't be a normal individual and and survive with what they have to survive with. I can't even be, I mean, I, I can only know J. Frank Norris from what I read and what I've been told, but I do know from Dr. Ruckman personally. I've heard him tell the stories talking to Mel Shabaka. Nobody understands the the pressure that, that and, and the absolute um, hatred that it, it exists uh, for these guys, and you've got to be—you've got to be—you've got to be a unique individual to be able to hold up under that pressure. And you can't be a normal guy and have normal way of life and doing things and and be able to survive something like that. You know, uh, J. Frank Norris's problems were—you know—he was very egocentric. He was—he was very much a, a control guy. And he was very much uh, he was very much uh, the limelight guy. He he was a lot like General Patton. General Patton was a prima donna. He 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 wanted all the glory. He wanted all of the uh, he wanted uh, he wanted to be better than anybody else. And J. Frank Norris, you know, didn't want all the glory. I mean, he gave the glory to God, but he was very clear that he was the number one guy. And um, he, he, he really, really, really uh, looked at if loyalty, demanded loyalty. And if you were not loyal to him, boy, he, you, had a, you had a, definitely had a problem on your hands. Not everything he did was, was within Christian ethics, obviously. And sometimes people get hung up on that, and, you know, because they, uh, personally, I don't think they have a real good understanding of, of what Christianity really is. And that uh, even at the best man that you ever saw still has clay feet, and he, you know he, he he's human. And uh, but J. Frank Norris, uh, he had his problems, and uh, you know he was an egocentric. He wanted uh, he, it, but he had to be. He he had to be. He wouldn't have survived any other way. You cannot. Everything in life is a trade-off, and you cannot be bulletproof, ironclad. And it withstand atomic blast of the Southern Baptist Convention and all the liberals on planet Earth, and especially the Catholic Church, and and be a socialite. It just doesn't happen. You're going to have a trade-off someplace along the line that in your in your character, in your nature, and uh, because it takes a special kind of guy. And I think that you know if you would go back into Bible times, you would find that John the Baptist was probably a lot that way. 
he, he, was, he was completely out of touch with the mainstream, yet he was in touch with God. Moses was probably a lot the same way. And uh, you find that uh, great men that God has used in a mighty worldwide way, uh, they're, they're not like you and me. And uh, sometimes we look at their frailties on the one side, but because we don't see the whole picture and understand who they are, um, you know, we, 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 don't, we get caught up in that. And we lose sight of the fact that, uh, you know, God, he was exactly the man God needed. And uh, it, God just doesn't look at things as crucially and as critically as we do sometimes. And, uh, you know, uh, with J. Frank Norris, uh, you know, uh, his ethics sometimes were questionable in things that he did, uh, as well as some of his dealings with the brethren. But he was a no-nonsense guy. And the bottom line is, in a time when God needed something for a nation that had rejected God and rejected the Word of God and had apostatized into hating the Bible and Bible-denying and Bible-correcting, he found a jet-propelled atomic sledgehammer in J. Frank Norris. But J. Frank Norris, to do what he did, is going to be a trade-off in, in, him, in him someplace. And uh, obviously that, uh, you know, God used him for what he, he wanted to use him for. He reminds me of, again, as, as what probably what the prophets must have been like. And see, we only, get a, we only get a snippet of it by just reading the Bible. We don't see the everyday lives, the personalities, the, the, the eccentric things that the prophets must have been. Because they were hated as much as J. Frank Norris ever was, only, and, and, you know, and they were on the outside looking in, and, and, and many times their, their lives were in jeopardy, and as the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, many times they were killed by their own, their own people. And, uh, you know, from start to finish, uh, the stamp of the New Testament uh, aspect of a church and the Holy Spirit of God was, was evident uh, on his church and in his ministry that he had. And I don't know of anybody on this planet today, anybody, you, I don't even know who could give me a name, who was responsible more for what we have today. And I want to kind of walk you through that and show you how this thing evolved. The only reason we're here tonight, honest to goodness, the only reason we're here tonight and the only reason you have a King James Bible and you have what you have is because of what J. Frank Norris had the courage to do and certainly more courage than anybody in this room, or not probably anybody in the world today. And, um, you know, back then there was four men that, uh, and they weren't, you know, J. Frank Norris was a Baptist, but you had, you had J. Frank Norris, you had Mordecai Ham, who was, a, uh, was a, a great preacher. You had Bishop Cannon, he was a Methodist. And he had a guy by the name of Stratton Baptist, who was another preacher. And these four men, even though they weren't all Baptists, they were really preaching the Word of God, and they were, they were hated. And these four men, by the educated crowd and by the uh, denominational crowd, were called the four horsemen of the devil. And obviously, they're likening them to the four horsemen here in, in, uh, in Revelation chapter uh, you know, 6. And uh, they really tore things up. But, you know, the, the effect that J. Hack Norris has is, is undeniable. And, you know, you're free to, you know, judge him, think what you want to think about him, and you'll find people to this day who love him and people who hate him. I neither love him nor I hate him. I just appreciate the fact that he had enough guts to stand for me to give me a Bible. And I don't, I don't expect people to be perfect. I, it just, it's not in my nature. I just, people aren't perfect. I don't set myself up for those kind of failures. People make mistakes. People, God uses people who make mistakes. 
And it's a tendency for Christians to get so pious and so self-righteous in the fact that they don't see their own sin, but they like to view the sin of everybody else. And, uh, and that happens a lot with J. Frank Norris. And then given the fact that he was exploited so much, uh, you know, the press, they'd exploited him. And in, in, in some of the things that he did bothered the brethren. When he shot that guy in his office, that was a very, you know, we laugh about it and we think it's a great thing. But that was a very big thing at the time. The newspapers got a hold of that, and they called him a, you know, a six-gun-toting preacher, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, and they, 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 they had brought him up, not brought him up on charges, but they investigated him, you know. Anytime you shoot somebody, there's going to be some kind of investigation. And even though it came out as justifiable homicide, where he was self-defense, I mean, the guy had clearly threatened him on the phone and came over to Norris. Norris didn't go to him. He was clearly defending himself. You can understand what the, what the devil would do with something like that. And so, you know, and then by the time the story gets told, you know, five, ten years later, you know, it's, it, that's just the way it goes. So a lot of it that you hear about him, you know, has been blown out and, it, it, and exasperated beyond belief. But he had his issues. There's no question about it. Um, he dies in 1952. But what he does is he sets the stage for uh, the last men who are going to carry the Word of God to a lost world. And uh, through his school that he develops... The following men, and this is, just a, a, this is just a sampling of them. These are the ones that I have known personally. There's many, many more uh, are put into the ministry. And from this, we get where we're at today. And this is what I really want you to see. I already told you that up to this point, there were no fundamentalists. There was no independent movement. Uh, and for the most part, anybody who believed the King James Bible was certainly in a remnant. Well, when J. Frank Norris come out and he starts his own school, he takes a lot of the boys out of the Southern Baptist Convention who felt like he did. He had a great following. The young men were drawn to him. He had a, he had a, he had a great, uh, I mean, he had a great charisma. I mean, he really did. He was a showman and a businessman. He had great charisma. He had great preaching power. And uh, people, young men especially, were drawn to him. And uh, so you find that he basically sucked off the dross of the best part of the Southern Baptist Convention when he left because when he kicked the door open, a lot of preachers and a lot of kids, uh, now that he had the stability and the strength to, to, to do it, they followed him. And uh, when he started his school, that school was based on the King James Bible. And he took in a lot of students down there and, uh, um, you know, some of the ones who who came through him, and I remember, you know, my, my pastor uh, in Ohio, Canton Baptist Temple, Dr. Harold Henniger, uh, he died a number of years ago, uh, but it, back in the 70s, when I was just starting to learn this myself, I asked him one time, I said, you know, I had just, you know, gotten my feet wet with what would happen in J. Frank Norris, and I asked him, because I knew he had went to Norris's school, and at that particular time in my life, I really didn't understand the the gravity of it all, you know. And I remember asking Harold, I remember saying, I said, I remember asking him, what was it like to be under Norris? And he kind of laughed, and, uh, and he was in his 60s at this time, you know. He kind of laughed, and he said, well, he said, it was quite an experience. And he said, uh, you know, we, uh, we, uh, uh, we, would, we had class in the campus there, and we'd be going across the campus. And he said, one of the things that J. Frank Norris was famous for, is he had a radio program every day on a radio. And 
you'd be walking to class and O.J. Frank Norris would come up and grab you by the arm and says, come on, son, you're going to preach on the radio today. And he says he'd take you in and turn you loose on the radio. And uh, that's the kind of guy he was. And it's a thing where it was, it was quite incredible, you know, that, that and I, I didn't appreciate it then like I do now, uh, to be under a man, Harold Hanniger, that had been with Norris. And, uh, you know, at the same time, uh, all across this country, uh, here in Kansas City, a, a guy who came to Kansas City back in, in 1940s, Wendell Zimmerman, and he was a radio preacher, as all the guys were back there, because there was no television yet. All the guys were radio preachers, and you could not hardly turn the radio on without getting clobbered with the Word of God. And old Wendell Zimmerman came here, and down... Uh, down in the town someplace, I forget exactly where it was, but they took an old converted gas station, and that became uh, the, the Kansas City Baptist Temple. And he founded the Kansas City Baptist Temple, and he was a King James man all of his life. And, uh, and he came out of Norris's church. Uh, later on, about 1975 or four, he went to Florida, and Truman Dollar took it over. But then he, he continued to pastor up to his death down there, in, uh, in Florida. And the reason I ask her is because they're married into the Zimmerman family, her sisters, right? Yeah. My parents went you, to the church that started on right. 39th Street. Yeah. Where was it again? It was a garage on 39th Street. 39th Street, that's where it was, down the inner city. The garage is gone now. Uh, they put a, some kind of office building there, but uh, that's where it was. And I remember them even back then when I first came here telling the stories how that they, when they got their little church, they went in, it was a garage or a grass station, and they scrape the oil off the floor, you know, to have their first church service and, and put straw, uh, sawdust down, you know, to soak up the oil that was in the thing. It had been a garage for years and years and years and sitting chairs down there, and that's where it started. Then it moved over on Swope Parkway there. That building's tore down now, and now it's, it's, uh, that was where Wendell was, and then when Truman came, then they moved over there on 55th Street and blew its cut off. But, uh, but Wendell's church was down there on... Uh, down there on uh, 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 50, 50 Highway, Little Blue Parkway, Swole Parkway, yeah, Swole Parkway. And this tore down now. Uh, you had Beecham Vic. Beecham Vic was uh, co-pastor. J. Frank Norris, what he did is he started the two biggest churches uh, on the North American continent. One of them was in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas. The other one was up in uh, Detroit, Michigan. And uh, that one was called Temple Baptist. And his associate, uh, after they got going, was a guy by the name of Beecham Vick. And Beecham Vick was a great preacher. And basically what happened was, is Norris uh, pastored the church in Dallas-Fort Worth, and Beecham Vick pastored the church in Detroit, but they were both were Norris's churches. They were huge churches, two or 3,000 people. And, uh, you know, they, they basically were... Uh, you know, he was the key guy there. We'll come back to him in a minute, and I'll show you how this thing develops. You had John Rawlings. John Rawlings is out of Norris's school, and he pastored a landmark Baptist church in Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, he was a great guy. Um, he was a great preacher. I got a guy by the name of Claude Borman, uh, Reggie Woodworth. Uh, Reggie Woodworth was a teacher down at uh, Baptist Bible College, and we'll see how that got going here in a moment, but he's, at a, he's one of Norris's guys. And uh, Dallas Billington. Dallas Billington was not directly out of Norris's group, but Dallas Billington was affected by all that was going on during this period of time. And, 
You know, uh, I told you last week about the book, God is Real. Uh, Joe, uh, while we were talking about it, got online on his phone and bought it on eBay or wherever he bought it from and read it this week and told me that, without a doubt, I was absolutely right. It was the single greatest book you ever read. What, that, that, Joe? Great book. Just a great book. What did it cost you? Nine dollars. Can't beat that. Bob Gray is another one uh, who was a great pastor. And uh, Dr. Cavan who was associated with the Baptist Bible College, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Dow. Uh, and these were men that in my days of when I first came to Kansas City, and uh, I, would, I would have an opportunity to meet these guys. Uh, Truman Dollar, uh, who was not out of Norris's school, he's the next generation, but he, he was pastoring the Kansas City Baptist Temple when I came there, when I started out being the youth pastor there in 1976. And, um, you know, Truman uh, and I, you know, we, he, would, he would ask me, he would go to Springfield, Missouri all the time. That's where the big school is down there. And because uh, he was one of their fair-haired guys and he was pretty big in the fellowship. And he would go down there to speak or he would go down there to preach. And he'd always ask me to drive him. And, uh, and I, I remember that as some of the greatest times that uh, I've ever had because I would, we would, I would ask him all kinds of questions. And he would you know, he was, he was less candid with me. He would tell me things, you know, and talk to me about things. And his favorite expression was, he'd look over and says, if you ever tell anybody I said this, I'll deny it and call you a liar. You know, and that was his favorite expression. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I got to ask him a lot of great questions because at that point in time, I was really, that's when I was developing my own understanding of church history. And I, and I got to be right in the middle of it down at the Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri. And I actually got, I sat at the table. when it, I remember he spoke down there at the big meetings that they would have him down. And I would go down there with him just to drive him, you know. And I was pretty much loose and fancy free. But they always had me sit at the table. So I got to listen to Dr. Dow and Dr. Cabot. I never said anything because I'm a nobody. But I got to listen to them talk, and I got to hear, you know, the way they were and see the things that they did. And, and uh, you know, it was quite interesting. And both those guys were, were, uh, were pastor of the big Baptist church down there, which was called High Street Baptist Church. And Dr. Cavan and Dr. Dow uh, at times was, was part of that. And, uh, you know, they were pastor of that church and uh, also over the school. Another guy right here in Kansas City who's now retired, and he's still alive, and he's still preaching, is Parker Daly. And Parker Daly pastored the Blue Ridge Baptist Temple for many, 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 many years. And uh, he was a great preacher. And he was connected with Springfield and all that that was going on down there. Uh, Cecil Hodges from Atlanta, Georgia. And Cecil Hodges was a guy who come out of the, all of these guys, uh, they all came out of the Southern Baptist Convention, every one of them. The fundamentalist movement that, as we know it, didn't come out of the American Baptist or the GRB. They pretty much stayed in apostasy. I don't know, um, there may be some, I don't know of any major pastors or preachers or churches that ever came out of those groups that ever connected with the line of fundamentalism that we're talking about here. The American Baptist pretty much stayed shot. And the GRB pretty much stayed shot. And they have continued to, to loosen and pretty much just as dead as a morgue at this particular point. And the reason why nothing ever came out of them is because they didn't have a J. Frank Norris. J. Frank Norris impacted the Southern Baptist Convention. He broke it right in half. 
and he let out. He, he understood history. He understood the fact that uh, you can't reform something from the inside. And that's what many of the, the, the Southern Baptist pastors wanted to do. They would not leave the Southern Baptist Convention. They felt a loyalty to it. They had invested their money in it, their time in it. And they didn't want to, in their minds, give all that up that they had invested. The truth of the matter is, you know, uh, there's only one way you can, you can do it. You can't revive the thing once it goes from the inside. You have to break out of it. And J. Frank Norse knew that. And that's what he did. And when he did, he led the exodus of men who felt the same way that he did, but lacked a leader and a courage, and God was the, used him as the, as the guy. Another guy was a guy by the name of Lewis Emery, who was also uh, connected with Norris, and uh, he was down in the Springfield. Uh, Bob Hughes was one of Norris's boys. Bob Hughes was probably the greatest missionary in the 20th century. And he died of cancer about uh, 15, 20 years ago. But he probably was the greatest missionary in the 20th century uh, that we've turned out. An incredible guy. Uh, Bill Sears, Noel Smith. And uh, some of you guys who have done a little work and done a little study, you have, have listened to some of the tapes or read some of the stuff by a guy by the name of Billy Bartlett. Remember Billy Bartlett? You don't, probably never met him. I knew him. Uh, Billy Bartlett was the last of the guys. He was, a, he, was a, he was the dean of students back in 70, 70s and the 80s at BBC. And BBC at this time was going into apostasy. And, and uh, Billy Bartlett was the, one of the last stalwart defenders of the King James Bible. They did a, they did a Ruckman did a number of years ago, a, what they called a Bible Defenders Unit, where they had a conference at some place, and all of the guys came that believed the King James Bible. I mean, they all were there. Ruckman was there. Uh, Billy Bartlett was there. Um, I forget who all was there, but there was like 20 guys. And it, it's in a set. I still have the set. It's on cassette. On website. Mm-hmm. On our website? Oh, okay. And, huh? Billy's brother also. Yeah, Larry Bartlett was his name. Yeah. I don't know of anybody in my mind that I've ever met uh, smarter when it came to church history than Billy Bartlett. Uh, his, his series on Erasmus <laughs> was the greatest thing I ever heard in my life. And uh, there again, he was an egotist up the zoo, and he was, a, he was an arrogant guy. And uh, Billy knew a lot about a lot of things, and he lets you know it. And, uh, but I'll tell you, he certainly had a handle on that particular stuff there. And you see, he was, he was Beecham Vick's grandson. See? That's how he fits into the line. Most people don't know that. And, the, and here again, the only reason they kept him at Springfield and didn't boot him was because old man Vick started to school down there, and Vick was dead by this time, so they couldn't very well, and his wife was still alive, and she's the Virgin Mary of the Baptist Bible Fellowship, so they couldn't get rid of Billy. They had to be stuck with him. And uh, I don't know what happened to Billy Bartlett, but, uh, uh, but uh, God then used him down there in that particular area. And there were thousands of others uh, who became uh, the leaders of, and the pastors of, of the Baptist movement uh, that we know today as fundamentalism. You want to remember, and most people do not know this, <clears throat> you hear people's names today, 
uh, that are, are Baptist pastors, uh, guys like uh, Jerry Falwell, and uh, you know, uh, and out of Lynchburg, Virginia, and all of these other guys that you hear uh, that have their own. There's a million fellowships now. Back in the 40s, when they first broke out, there was only Norris. Uh, when they split with with Beecham Vick, and we'll get to that in a moment, that's when they formed the Baptist Bible Fellowship. And that was the only fundamental fellowship other than Norris's. Well, Norris dies in 1952. The Baptist Bible Fellowship was founded in 1950, 60 years ago. Norris dies in 52. His movement kind of just peters out and goes away. But the great BBF then began to take over. From that point to now, all the other side offshoots, all the Jerry Falwell, all the Tennessee Temple crowd, all of the crowds out there that, that are not connected with the BBF, all come out of that BBF movement with J. Frank Norris at some point down the line. In other words, it all goes back. They may have, they're all land, branches off the main root of the tree, which was the Baptist Bible Fellowship, which came out of the World Fellowship of Norris, which brought them out of the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and that's, that's important to know. It kind of gives you a kind of a perspective on, on everything. And uh, in the 30s and the 40s, Norris's World Fellowship had gained tremendous stride. Uh, he had, as I said, had learned the lessons of history well, and he got out. And uh, it was a big fight. To this day, they hated him. But Norris had established two great Bible-believing churches, the one in Fort Worth and then Temple Baptist in Detroit. Uh, these two churches down the line uh, over the period of time, even after the split, uh, would be responsible for over 30,000 pastors going out uh, and thousands and thousands of Baptist churches being started. And this is where the birth of the fundamentalist movement came. And they all started out believing the book. Uh, in about 1948, a split in the World Baptist Fellowship took place. And what happened was, as Norris... And best I can figure, and I've read every book on it that I could get my hands on. Of course, I wasn't alive at the time, and you've got to take everything with a grain of salt. But knowing Norris the way I do from studying his life and the way he was, to me it seems like that Beecham Vick kind of got intimidating to him, and Norris tried to put him, pull his reins back in, and, 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 a, and a riff came up. And it was a riff. It was an absolute knockdown, drag-out, rotten fight. I mean, they called each other everything under the sun, and I mean, it was, the lines were drawn, and, and basically, basically, you know, this was God being done with J. Frank Norris. I mean, when you read study history, you've got to read between the lines, and when you see history of what God's doing and not what just J. Frank Norris is doing, you can better see it. J. Frank Norris had run his course. Yet in 1948, God's going to take him home in 1952. He's over. He's done his part. But God knew that J. Frank Norris wasn't going to walk in and say, hey, I'm done, I'm going to retire. That wasn't J. Frank Norris. So God had to bring about the riff, and the guys who left Norris were guys who saw the old man for what he was and how he was controlling things, and he had come to the point in his life now where he was somewhat paranoid and eccentric over things, and, uh, and just it was time for him to go. He'd run his course. So when they split in 1948... Beecham Vick comes out. Norris keeps the church down in Dallas-Fort Worth. Beecham Vick takes the church in Detroit. 
which now becomes Temple Baptist, and when they split from the World Baptist Fellowship, uh, most of most of all of these guys that I just listed, and many, many more, they go with Beecham Vic. And in just a short time, they reorganize into their own fellowship, which becomes what we know as the Baptist Bible Fellowship, whose headquarters are in Springfield, Missouri. And uh, the church that comes out of that down there uh, is the... Uh, is the uh, 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 High Street Baptist Church, called High Street because it's on High Street, not the street it runs on. And so what happens is, a split in the World Fellowship took place in 1948, and Beach and Vic and the above pastors that I mentioned, with many, many more, they broke from the World Fellowship, and in 1950, they started the Baptist Bible Fellowship. I've got a book that I think is probably one of my most cherished possessions, and it's not even a book, and I don't even know where you would get one. Uh, today, uh, but it was it was written on their. It must have been their fortieth anniversary. Billy Bartlett wrote a detailed history of the beginning of the Baptist Bible Fellowship in Springfield, Missouri. It's about that thick, and it's not really a book. It's more like a. It's not even a hardcover. Uh, and it's and I don't and I found it at the Canton Baptist Temple when I was rummaging through some stuff years ago. I don't. I mean, they, they obviously gave them out. They didn't sell them. They gave them to people because this was our 40th anniversary. Here's a little lineage of history. I don't even know where mine ever came from. I just found it and I saw it, and I don't even didn't even know what it was at the time. I didn't even value it. I just said I'll keep that. Well, about 10, 15 years later, I saw it and I thought, wow, and uh, I, I read it you know, several, several times. And Billy Bartlett, even though he turned, he tells the story from, from the Vic side, uh, because he was, you know, Beecham Vic was fighting with Norris, and he took his daddy's, granddaddy's side, which is fine. He gives you enough insight and enough material to really make it one of my most cherished possessions as far as the history books that I have. And it, it just put... You know, it puts a lot of things into perspective. And the average, there isn't, there isn't any Christians today who understand what I'm talking about. Uh, they're just gone. I mean, the, the Baptist preachers today have no idea. If you went to the, if you went, you just pick the, the independent Baptist churches in this town and go to them and ask them uh, about uh, their history. How did it, they have no clue. And it's a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy. And, uh, the church in Detroit then became the Kingpin Church under the leadership of Dr. Vic. And I can tell you that in my day, in the 1960s and the 70s, when I got into Christianity, and uh, through the 80s and the 90s, uh, when the Baptist Bible Fellowship was in its heyday, Temple Baptist Church was, was like the Vatican City. And uh, if you got to, when the old man Vic died, uh, uh, they, it was kind of like uh, it was kind of it's a lot like the Catholic Church. Uh, when old man Vic died, uh, the president of High Street was a guy by the name of A. V. Henderson, and uh, and so what happened was uh, it was all a political thing. Uh, everybody went everybody went up a level. When Doctor Vic died, uh, A. B. Henderson is resurrected up, and he goes into Temple Baptist, and then they picked a new leader for. The uh, 
uh, the, the high street, which was, I think that time, a Dr. Cavan or Dr. Dow, I can't remember which, and everybody just went up a couple levels. When, when A.B. A. B. Henderson, we used to call him A.B.C. Henderson, uh, when A.B. Henderson uh, uh, retired, then it was a political chain of events, and that's when Truman Dollar was the fair-haired boy in a fellowship, so he got the church. But whoever got the church in Temple Baptist was like going to the uh, Vatican and becoming the Pope because the church in, in uh, that was Dr. Vick's church, and it was relegated like the White House of, of fundamentalism. And whoever was there was the kingpin. And you weld the sword over everything that went on in fundamentalism. And it was all political by then, but that's exactly what happened. And, of course, uh, you know, all that's gone today. Uh, it's all gone. Temple Baptist is still up there, but it's, a, it's worthless now. There's nothing, no power to it at all. Baptist Bible Fellowship, you hardly hear anything about it anymore. They've lost it all. And we'll talk about how they lost it. They lost it in the last 20-some years, and we'll, we'll see how they lost it here in a little bit. But uh, uh, that's how it all happened. And this gave birth to, in 1950, to uh, the independent movement. And this is where you have all your, this is why all the churches are called Baptist temples at this time. You find them in every city. Akron Baptist Temple, Cincinnati Baptist Temple, Columbus Baptist Temple, Kansas City Baptist Temple. They're all called Canton Baptist Temple, Maslin Baptist Temple. They all have a Baptist temple in them. Any church called Baptist Temple will be a church that is connected out of Norse and out of the Baptist Bible Fellowship Group. And uh, they had some good ideas. They really did. Uh, they, they, they went back to uh, independent Baptist churches. The original concept of independent Baptist churches uh, was in a, in, in, in a, against the Southern Baptist crowd because the Southern Baptists were not independent in any way, shape, or form. They were co-op churches. By that I mean that there was a central Southern Baptist committee by which every, every Southern Baptist church had to hold allegiance to. They sent you, they sent you uh, all the Sunday school material that you would preach. You didn't have, you didn't have the ability, uh, you should not have your ability if you were a good Southern Baptist. You used the Sunday school curriculum that they sent you. Uh, they, they, they sent you your pastors. You really didn't do anything. When you took up your offering, a portion of that offering went back to the co-op to fund all of the stuff that's being done. And by doing that, uh, many Southern Baptist churches, uh, they, the, the co-op, the, the main place, owned the church building. So, you know, if you decided you don't want to be a Southern Baptist anymore, and you pull out of the Southern Baptist, they own the church, so you're out in the street. They pretty much sewed up everything uh, the way that it was. And may I add this to it? The, the Southern Baptist con Convention, the, 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 the concept of it, the, the Cosa Nostra, the Mafia, uh, the uh, KGB, the CIA, uh, they never had anything on, on the Southern Baptist hierarchy. The Southern Baptist hierarchy is the most demon-possessed, most unbelievably satanically controlled organization on the planet Earth, outside maybe the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, they care nothing about the things of God. To them, it's just like politics in Washington. The corruption is unbelievable. It's all politics. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things Norris has wanted to escape. And this is what the independent Baptist churches 
did for a period of time. Uh, They set up the Bible as the final authority, which was a good thing. They had no co-op program. That is a good thing. Uh, they, They understood the concept of the separation of church and state. That's a good thing. But what they did was, is they got them, they were independent as far as churches were concerned, but they felt like they needed to all be in the same boat someplace so that they wouldn't get, they all had to kind of fly in formation so they wouldn't get picked off one at a time. So they formed a fellowship. And the fellowship, as we know it, was the Baptist Bible Fellowship. A fellowship is a loose conglomeration of churches. You don't necessarily uh, have to give any money to it, though they all do, because once they started a school, which was Baptist Bible College, the only way they can fund a school is by churches giving. But it, was, was a, it wasn't something that you had to do. Uh, they had fellowship meetings. They broke down state by state. They had a state representative. They had a, a national representative. And then, of course, they, and it, it, what happened was, and this is where that you got to be careful, and uh, because what happened was, is in time, they went right back to the dead orthodoxy structure of the Southern Baptist Convention. I remember years ago being with Mel Sabaka and the Baptist Bible Fellowship. This would be back in the late 70s. The Baptist Bible Fellowship in that time was, was having a big fight over the King James Bible. They were pretty much going into apostasy. And uh, somebody said to Mel Sabaka one time, they said, you know what we ought to do, Mel? We had to just split from this thing and start our own fellowship, and you could be president of it. And Mel said, yeah, that's exactly what we need to do. And then 40 years from now, we'll be just like they are. See, the old man knew that that kind of system may start out with the best intentions in the world, but anytime you have to have a bunch of churches and you elect somebody over them and you start to have the structure in it, it's going to go to hell in a handbag. Uh, uh, Independent means independent. And the independent church today doesn't even know what it means anymore. We, by every stretch of the imagination, are an independent church. Nobody tells us what to do. And, uh, you know, we are free to follow the dictates of the King James Bible the way that God leads us to do it. We have a governmental structure within our own church that is run with the pastors and the elders and and the deacons of the church and the leadership of the church. We, uh, we have, we're friends with other churches. We're friends with Frank. Down there we go to the Bible conference. And uh, we've got our new guy, you know, uh, Dave, uh, uh, Pastor Fuller up here that we talked about Sunday. And uh, we'll have a great relationship with that. But there's no tied connection. It's very loose. We won't be electing a president who sits over all of us and tries to, we won't be putting our, pulling our money for anything. We won't be, we, you know, we won't be having fellowship meetings where, you know, we, we, we meet together and discuss the world's problems. We're independent. We don't need anybody else. We don't want anybody else. I like you're my friend. You're my, like-minded. We'll do things together as churches. You come to our thing. We'll come to yours. But that's where it ends. We won't start, we won't start a Bible college anywhere. Now, we, I personally believe that, uh, that every, church ought to ha- every church ought to teach and have their own training facility for pastors. If a church over here can't do it and they want to send their students to our institute, that's perfectly okay. And uh, we don't charge anything for our institute. There's no money involved. Uh, there's, no, there's no program where we've got to fund anything. It, it, it's the way it's supposed to be. 
And, uh, you know, it, it, it got to the place where they started out good, but uh, like everything else, um, they went down the wrong road. It wasn't long before they said, hey, you know what? If we're going to continue to train out preachers, we need to have a Bible college. And that was their first big mistake. And instead of these pastors who had come out of Norris's school, who understood Norris, even though Norris had a school, they go back to the Bible and start the Bible Baptist Fellowship, uh, Bible Baptist, uh, or BBC, Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri. And then what happens is, is what always happens, they bring in all the college professors who have never been pastors. Many of them don't believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. And if you think the Jesuits didn't infiltrate that system just like they have every other system, then you got up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. And in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, it's an apostasy. The fight was on in 1970. That was 20 years after they started. And of course, uh, by that time, there was Bible colleges and fellowships all over, this, all over the country, as there are today. You had Jerry Falwell from the down south, Lynchburg, Virginia. You had Jack Hiles. He's from Southside Fellowship. You had a guy by the name of Jack Baskin. He's from the Pacific Coast Fellowship. Uh, Cecil Hodges, in time, starts the Baptist University of America down in Atlanta, and that's another fellowship. Uh, they're all over the place. And what happens is that they all fall for the same thing, and they all fall back into the old same trap that they think that they have to have a Bible college to train their students. And by the time we get to, uh, uh, I mean, when this thing started, but in the 1940s and the 1950s, we have all the elements to really do something. We had the World Fellowship with Norris setting up a Bible-believing works, Baptist Bible Fellowship founded, and Bible-believing pastors across this country turning out churches and pastors like crazy, and then it happens. It always happens. And uh, it's that old cycle. And uh, you're going to find out a strange phenomena here that all the old guys, when they start out, I mean all of them, Henniger, Zimmerman, Vic, Rawlings, Billington, Bob Gray, Calvin, Dow, Hodges, all of them start out in the 1940s and 50s as soul-winning Bible-believing pastors, and by 1979 and 1980, with almost without exception, every one of them, when you read their name now, has a doctor in front of it. They went from just the old plain preaching to doctors. And not one of them had an earned doctorate degree. Every one of them had a Every one of them had a doctor degree bestowed on them by a college because of money they gave, students they sent, or some incredible influence that they put into it. And uh, most of these guys in the next generation they produce, these guys start out believing the Bible. I can talk about, you know, uh, Dr. Harold Henniger. He starts out believing the King James Bible when he's with Norris. And by the time I was there and got into the scene in 1974, 5, and 6, um, he no longer was sure the King James Bible was the Word of God. How did he get changed in that? He got changed in that through the influence of places like Bob Jones University. And Bob Jones University was a great anti-establishment uh, to the King James Bible. And they were turning out students, and the music director that we had at the Canton Baptist Temple that was uh, the, the nemesis of Mel Shabaka, who never went to Bible college anywhere, uh, was trained at Bob Jones University. So the, 
Bell standing on the King James 1611, and Bob Johnson from BUA uh, is, is standing on the NIV. And Henninger's caught in the middle. And uh, we were sending, the big riff was, you know, that all these schools would raise up their kids, and then they sent them off to Bible college. You train them up and train them in the Bible, then you send them off to Bible college, and they'd come back agnostics when it comes to the Bible, not believing in the Bible anymore. In other words, the very Bible college you sent them to destroyed their very faith in the Bible. I heard Mel Sabaka one time in a fellowship meeting give the greatest analogy I ever heard in my life of how stupid you Baptist preachers were. And he didn't pull any punches. And... Um, for whatever reason, they'd always like to have him preach, but he just tried to hide off of him. And one time he was preaching, and I was sitting down there, and I was just a young guy, and I, about, I couldn't believe he was saying what he was saying, but I, uh, the greatest thing I ever heard. He got up there, and he was talking about it. He said, you guys are the stupidest people in the world. He says, God gives you these, and he was well-respected for training men in the ministry, so people listened when he talked. And he said, you guys are the stupidest people in the world. He says, God gives you the cream of the crop in your church, young men and young ladies. You train them, you get them saved, you build them up, and right when they're ready to do the ministry, then you send them off down to Jerry Falwell or send them off to Bob Gray. What does Jerry Falwell and Bob Gray do? They put them to work in their church, building their churches, and then when they graduate from school, when they're ready to go out to the mission field or whatever and they need support, then they send them back to you to support them. He said, you guys are the stupidest people in the world. That was exactly what they did. And instead of those guys keeping their people like we do, to build their own church, they were sending them down to these schools. And when they went to these schools, they have to go to church with the church that is connected with the school. In Jerry Falwell's case, it was his church there. And at uh, BBF, it was High Street. You couldn't go to any other church. So they would take, what, 600,000, 2,000 students? put them to work, knocking on doors, driving buses, teaching Sunday school. They'd have to get a job so they get their tithe. And they're paying to go to their school. And then when they're done and ready for the ministry, they ship them back to their home church. And now they got to support them to go out into the mission field. It's a great deal. But it's stuff like that that, uh, that, uh, that it destroyed it. And most of these guys, you know, from this point on, uh, they, they didn't believe the book anymore. Uh, most of these guys in the next generation they produced start out believing the Bible is the Word of God. They built their churches on it. They won people to Christ with it. But somewhere along the line, uh, they find that the great truth of the King James Bible that once built their churches uh, is no longer any good. And I wonder where they got that from. Did God enlighten them? No, I'll tell you where they got it from. They got it from the infidels they brought in when they started colleges in their schools and sent their kids to it, who were the college professors that did not believe the Word of God was the Word of God. I'd been in situations where they would have somebody come down to BBC or whatever they would go, whatever school, and the guy would go in and he'd preach in the church or preach in the chapel and he'd just tear the hide off the wall and get everybody convicted. And then their kids would go back into the classes and the college professor would tear apart what the guy just said in his preaching. Now you tell me how that's productive. But that's, the devil doesn't miss any tricks. The churches start out on fire and soul winning, turning out men and women that love the book, trusting God and, and, and seeing the miracles of God and wind up with four, five, six thousand people in Sunday school, millions of dollars worth of property, great bank accounts, 
but they're just as dead and cold as a morgue. And the great men of God start out uh, as, as hellfire uh, brimstone preachers, but they wind up refined gentlemen because that's exactly what education does for them. And uh, it all comes through education. All or most of these men either start schools themselves or they line up with schools that they ship their kids off to. And, uh, of course, we talked about the BBC, uh, BB, uh, BBC Lynchburg, Bob Jones University, uh, Pacific Coast, uh, Pensacola Christian College is another one, Tennessee Temple, Hiles Anderson was another one. And uh, these pastors lose sight of the job of the local church. Nowhere in the Bible does it say to ship anybody off. The job of the local church and the job of the pastor is to train young men and young ladies, to train them in the Bible that they have everything they need to equip them. There is nowhere in the Bible do you find them sending them off to school someplace. Because what happens is the schools slowly get control over the students, who in turn become pastors, and you know the rest of the story. I've read known pastors that are so loyal to, loyal to the school that they graduate from. If they were half as loyal to the Bible God saved them with, they'd get things incredibly done. But it misappropriates their loyalty. And this psychological approach to the Bible Christianity is felt in all areas. This leads to a whole new dimension that was never found into the Bible. This leads to what I came into in my life in the 70s, uh, which is still prevalent today, the Christian school movement. And that is to take your kids out of the public school and put them in Christian school. By this time, it was a, it was a trick. And... Uh, the ministerial students are taught in Bible college that the way you build a church is you, you get a building, you get some people, and then you, you talk about the evils of the public school system. And then you tell your people how that, that if their kid goes to public school, they're going to wind up and go to hell. You scare them to death. You make it an absolute uh, thing that you do all the time, and you just harp on it all the time. And then you tell them the only way to keep their kids from going to the devil is to have a Christian school. Because in our school, there's a sign over the door that says, Devil, you can't come in here. And of course, most of the Christian schools are worse than the public schools. At least in the public schools, you know what you got there. Somebody said to me one time, if you had your choice but crossing your church having a whorehouse and a bar or having a, 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 a Presbyterian or a Catholic church, what would you say? i say, I'll take the whorehouse and the bar. Well, I just can't believe that. Why would you do that? Because you know what goes on in there. At least they're honest. And, of course, uh, they got the idea, parents got the idea. And, of course, you can see human nature getting involved in this. Once the parent sends their kids off to Christian school to get a Christian education, the parent now sleeps well at night because he knows that his child is guaranteed because he's getting a Christian education. Let me tell you where human nature goes with that. You don't have to work as hard now being a Christian parent because your kid is going to Christian school. And the devil heard every word of that conversation. And I'll tell you what, the fallacy of that is there's so many kids out today who went to Christian schools who saw the fallacy of the Christian school movement who never want to step in a church again today. And I don't blame them very, I mean, I have great compassion for people like that because I agree with them. I think they got the short end of the stick. I think they, uh, I think they got, uh, the problem was this, the kids were smarter than the parents, which is always the case. Parents are always the dumbest. The kids figure it out just like that. 
But then the downside of that is human nature to the kids. They'll use that against them to do what they want to do. But that's what happened. Christian school movement. Then they tell you, you know, that what you do is you start a Christian school, and then uh, once you get everybody scared, the kids are going to go to hell, and they want to come to your Christian school, then you require them to join your church. That's how you build a church. That was the mode back in the 70s. And that's not how you build a church. Bible colleges now turn out more Christian educators than they turn out preachers. That's a bad thing. Then we enter into the era, era of specialists. That's a bad thing. We now enter into where most churches, and this was true when I was at the, at the uh, Kansas City Baptist Temple, uh, we have, uh, we have a, a, a Christian psychologist on staff. And, uh, you know, we, we're in the professional realm now. We have Christian, Christian psychologists. We have Christian psychiatry. Uh, we have professional marriage counseling. Okay? And for families, we have trained family counseling centers. And, of course, all this gives birth to the parachurch organizations, which we know as Youth for Christ, places like that, uh, all, of the, all of the Christian organizations that have nothing to do with the New Testament local church. And yet the Bible teaches very clearly that every activity uh, concerned around the Bible ought to be run through, orchestrated through, and governed over by a New Testament local church. I remember as a youth pastor, the big rift between uh, the Baptist churches in Kansas City and Youth for Christ. Youth for Christ, I don't even think they call it Youth for Christ anymore, do they? I don't know what they call it. Maybe it's gone now. I don't know. Al Metzger ran it for years. He's dead now. Ronnie Metzger ran it, his son, for a while, and he ought to be dead. It, is it still there? Or is, it, is it still called Youth for Christ? I don't think it's called Youth for Christ. Yeah, it's over in Rainbows. And, uh, you know, what the big rift was is that uh, uh, the churches ran competition with, or Youth for Christ ran competition with the churches. And they had their big youth rallies on Saturday night. And uh, they'd take up offerings, and that's how they raised money. But Youth for Christ wasn't a church. Uh, it was a parachurch organization. And Baptist churches had a problem with that, which rightly they should, because they didn't want to send their kids or take their kids over to the big youth rally because of the fact that uh, that was an organization that was taking their kids from their local church, and God's program was a local church. It was a big riff over that for years, years, years. And I never really went to them. Um, the only time I ever went to it was one time where, I believe it or not, I, I got Mel Sabaka. They, 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 everybody knew who Mel Sabaka was, but Mel Sabaka wouldn't go preach anywhere at that particular point. He was building a church in New York. But, but I could get him to go preach for me, and we hadn't seen each other for like five or six years. So this guy asked me, he said, man, I'd love to have Mel Sabaka. I said, well, I can get Mel. You get Mel to come? Yeah, I can get him to come. He said, well, if you get him to come, we'll, we'll fly him out here. I said, okay, that's fine. I called him on the phone and said, hey, I'd like to spend a, three or four days together. Yeah, well, how are we going to do that? And I said, I got you set up to preach out here. He said, oh, I'll come and preach, man. We get to spend some time together. And that's the only time I ever went. He tore the hide off them over there, man. I'll tell you what, he just did. That was the first and the last time they had him. Never asked me to get him back again. Now we move into the, we, 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 we move into, uh, in the movement in churches of teaching versus preaching. And uh, all of this is the downfall uh, and all of these things, from the counseling to marriage to the family uh, to the teaching of the Bible, this is all the pastor in the New Testament local church's job. And there's no such thing as a specialist. I don't know of any problem anybody's has 
or gets or could have or will have or ever hope to get that cannot be solved with sitting down in a Bible and taking the Bible and applying the principles. But that's just me. That's where it's at today. And uh, this also brings in the age of gimmicks and promotions and uh, the high pressure. It's in a time of intense soul winning. It's a time that uh, the emphasis is, is put on soul winning unbelievably, but for the wrong motive and for the wrong reason. They're not really care about people getting saved because once they get saved, there's no discipleship. In these churches, the burnout rate was unbelievable. And you'd have a turnover almost completely in your church every three or four or five years. Person to come down and get saved, pastor slap him on the back and say, you need to drive a bus. You need to be a Sunday school teacher. No discipleship, no, no teaching him the fundamentals of the Bible, no giving him anything. I've heard pastor after pastor and a pastor say this. If when you get saved, if you come to church and you get into ministry and you tithe, you'll be okay. And they weren't okay. And after about six months to a year of taking a new Christian and putting him into a bus route and working him how many hours plus his own job or putting him here and putting him there with no stable spiritual stability in his life, he burns out. And they would, they would lose him. And then, of course, the, the job of the pastor would be to blame the person that he really wasn't saved and put the blame back on him instead of understanding fundamentally his church was a flop. But that's it. It was the age of gimmicks. It was the age of, we'll give you something to bring somebody to church. It was the age of church competitions to have the most people we could have. But nobody cared. Everybody wanted a big crowd. I remember, I remember pastors that on Monday morning, was, we used to call it Black Monday. Uh, it, it was the most depressing time uh, that you ever have in your life, in most of these pastors' lives. Because it was like, you build up for Sunday. You did everything. You visited people. You did everything in the world. You, 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 you asked a thousand times, how many are you going to have on Sunday? How many are you going to have? And when you got the big number that you hit your goal, well, you were the happiest guy in the world. And uh, it wasn't the fact that there was 30 people saved. That didn't matter. It was the fact we made our goal and we had all the people we wanted. And then Monday, you know what happens? You go flat. Because on Tuesday, you got to build it back up again and start picking it up, put the pressure on the top what you did last Sunday. That's a lot of pressure to be under. I don't feel that pressure. You can come or you don't come. I don't care. I'm going to be here. And I don't really care if you come or you don't. I mean, I want you to, but I could care less. You'll never fail me worrying about feeling pressure. I, there's times that I get a tinge of it, <coughs> and I'll think to myself, well, I wonder what Sunday's going to be like. And I say to myself, in a half a second later, who cares? It'll be what it is. You know what? And that's the way I feel about it. It's one of those things where I don't get hung up on things like that. <clears throat> if God's in charge, then God will get here what he wants. I mean, the churches back then were a time of intense soul winning that produced a spiritual Frankenstein. And churches were just absolutely, I mean, uh, it was soul winning, soul winning, soul winning, soul winning, soul winning, but nothing was ever done with them. And our, our, and our infallible cycle, you know, comes true to the last. And uh, we see that thing that we talked about where a man, J. Frank Norris, movement, went into a machine. Now it's a monument. And the second guy to pick up the last half of the 20th century was Dr. Peter S. Ruckman. 
he did in the last half what J. Frank North did in the first half. And uh, most people uh, most people can't uh, appreciate that because they, they're so shallow. They have no viewpoint of history. They have no Bible at all. They, they wouldn't even know why they had a Bible, which Bible they have, which one's right or what's wrong. So how could they appreciate what God has done? But those two men have done more, and that's the only reason. When J. Frank Norris went off the scene in 1950, <coughs> and the Baptist Bible Fellowship came into a, a beginning around 1950, Norris dies in 52, uh, you're going to find that out of the Baptist Bible Fellowship uh, is where Ruckman comes from. He's won to Christ by U. Powell, who's right out of Norris's camp. I read you a list of guys, uh, Harold Henniger, Zimmerman, uh, Beecham Vick, uh, Rawlings. All of these guys out of Norris's camp have Ruckman preach in their church every year. Ruckman was saved back in the early 50s, and he started a preaching almost immediately in evangelism. And uh, he wasn't a pastor back then. He was an evangelist. And he held meetings at the Canton Baptist Temple. He held meetings at the Canton Baptist Temple. I remember him preaching there when I was probably five or six years old. Didn't know who he was, but I remember him drawing up there and preaching. Zimmerman had him at the Kansas City Baptist Temple back at the old building. Uh, I don't know how many people that when I was at the Kansas City Baptist Temple, older folks, uh, and they, we were talking about Ruck would come up and say, you know what, I was saved under his ministry down at the old church. And uh, they, they had tremendous ministries. And these old boys, they knew who he was, and they knew the book that he believed. But as the time went on, and the thing, the pressure came on, you know, by 1976, 77, Harold Henniger did not have Ruckman anymore. And then other churches did not have him anymore. And they were getting pressure from places that, uh, that uh, you know, that they were, these schools in these places who just hated Ruckman with a passion. And, uh, you know, so uh, they just drop him, and, and, and some of the old boys had him up till they died. And, uh, and, but a lot of them did not. And yet, when it comes to, to Ruckman, he's just like J. Frank Norris. He is probably, and I, I didn't know J. Frank Norris. I know Peter, Pe- I know Peter Ruckman. Uh, he's the absolute most social nightmare you have met, met in your life. Uh, he is absolutely, without a doubt, and, and somebody said one of the big sticks about him is he's been, this is his third wife he's had. And uh, to, the, to most people, that's a terrible thing. To me, I don't understand how any woman spends more than a week with him, personally. He wears them out. I mean, here's a guy that's turning 90 years old and he just quit playing goalie in a hockey season to five, six years ago. I mean, this guy will wear you out. He has unbelievable energy. Nobody can keep up with him, and yet at the same time, he's one of the most eccentric people you ever meet in your life. Uh, he's, he's, he's J. Frank Norris to a T, and I didn't know J. Frank Norris, but I told you, men who have to take the pressure that he takes. There's stories that I could tell you that, that what other churches have done to him, Bible colleges have done to him. I've known for a fact when he went to places to preach, 
that Bob Jones University, that good godly establishment, sent call girls to his room to try to entice him, to get him off, and then had somebody watching so they could get something on him. There's people right now on the Internet who take pictures and Photoshop them, putting him in bars, putting him in places that he shouldn't be in, and, and it's unbelievable. He trusts no one, and he can't. He trusts no one. He has a very close, tight circle of friends, and he trusts no one. You, people say, well, you ask him a question, and he won't answer you. He just real gruff. Yeah, you know why? You know how many times somebody's asked me a question and took his answer and, 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 and took it and turned it around? I mean, it's a thing where, I mean, it, it, it's, it's absolutely. I, I know a personal situation where him, me, and Bob Gray, and three or four other preachers were uh, at, holding a meeting at one time years ago, and uh, we got to eat afterwards. And there was this guy in this church, and I don't remember his name. It wasn't, it wasn't my church. It was another church. And this guy, the pastor told me, I was friends with a pastor. He told me, this guy has been bugging me to spend some time with Ruckman. So he says, I, uh, I'm going to let him go out to eat with us tonight. He just wants to go be around Ruckman. And, the guy, and, he's, and, and he told me this after the fact. So we go to this place to eat, and it's a situation where you can have, um, like, all the chicken you can eat, okay? And somebody else has, you can have all the fish you can eat, all right? Well, Ruckman got the chicken or whatever, and Bob Gray got the fish. And oh, maybe, I don't, it was, might have been vice versa. But anyway, they got two different things. And you're only supposed to eat what you get, okay? So they're sitting around talking, and I'm about four down from them, and I'm talking to somebody. I heard the conversation. He's talked, he tells it on tape. I've heard him say it on tape sometimes. And I'm sitting down at a table from him, and, and, and I heard Ruckman say to Gray, he says, he says, how was the chicken? And Gray said, it was really good. And Ruckman said, yeah, I should have got the chicken. The fish wasn't any good. And Bob Gray said, well, there's, you know, I'm not going to eat that. There's two pieces left. Go ahead and have one of those. Well, Ruckman, he'll eat anything and won't eat him first. See? So he ate both pieces of chicken. You know what that bird did? That bird went around the next day and for the next six or seven months talking about Ruckman cheating that restaurant because of the fact that he didn't order the chicken. He ordered the fish and ate that chicken. Now, that's, what, that's the kind of stuff he puts up with. That and a million times worse. And they've clobbered him, lied about him, and it's a price to pay for that book. You might as well know that. And the reason why some of the brethren can't appreciate Dr. Ruckman and what he's went through, to me, it's real simple. You're not willing to pay the same price he's willing to pay, so you have no idea. You ain't going to pay no price for that book. You ain't going to pay anything for it. You're going to just criticize the guy who does so you can have it, but you won't pay the price for it. Nothing gets me in the flesh faster than things like that. I just, I just would have, just would rather you would say thank you and shut your mouth. But that's, you know, but he single-handedly brought it from J. Frank Norris up to where we're at today. And God was done with J. Frank Norris, took him out of the scene, established what he did, and then had to give them something to hold the line against the apostasy that God knew was going to creep in, just like he did with the J. Frank Norris crowd. And that would be Peter Ruckman. And that's why he today is the greatest. God did something with Ruckman that he didn't do with J. Frank Norris. I got to add this little addendum to it. And it's the difference because of the time period. You see, when, Ruck, when J. Frank Norris, he was, the, he, was the, he was the bust out guy. He was the guy that uh, he, didn't, he didn't have a lot of, uh, I mean, he, he knew the Bible. And he was a great preacher. 
but he, he, he wasn't an intellect by any stretch of the imagination. And God used him to be the breakout guy. But God knew that in the last half of the 20th century, when it was going to go scholarly and it was going to really take off and it was going to really be, that he had to have not somebody that had the ability of J. Frank Norris, but he had to have the finest, keenest mind the world has ever seen when it comes to the English Bible. And here's a guy that holds five degrees. He can, read, he can read and write Greek and Hebrew better than anybody on the planet. I've seen him take on five or six college professors, Greek and Hebrew guys, and just spit them up and chew them out. Chew them up and spit them out. The guy's unbelievable. I mean, this guy's mind is so unbelievably incredible that it's, it's no wonder. But you can't have that on this end and be the Cleaver family on the other end. You just can't. You can't have the junkyard dog and Ozzy inherit on the other end. It doesn't work that way. And he is the proverbial junkyard dog. He'll tear you apart. There's no mind on this planet, and I'm just telling you. There is no mind on this planet Earth today as good as his mind. God had him for a specific reason. I don't agree with everything he does, and I think he, he is what he is. But you know what? I don't get into that. You are what you are. I am what I am. But when God needed somebody to hold a line with the Bible so you and I would have it, that's the guy he chose. Now, you may not like that, but you need to take that up with God because that was God's choice. Maybe you're just upset because he didn't pick you. Yeah, right. And uh, he is the guy that has held that line between those two. And uh, this is the downfall of where we find ourselves today in Christianity. This is why we do not have, this is why we do not have uh, an appreciation of where we come from. And uh, today, the Baptists have lost it all. Today, where the Baptists were the forefront runners in the early part of the 20th century and up through Norris and up through probably the 1970s, they're gone today. Now it's been all taken over by the neo-evangelicals. That'll be the Saddleback churches, places like that. People who are non-Baptistic in anything that they do. They're non-denominational and obviously the charismatic movement. And Baptist fundamentalism is dead today. And uh, there are no great Baptist churches today. There's not any. And uh, I don't care how many they're running. They're all just treading water. The real movement of evangelism today, which is a false evangelism, is the neo-evangelical movement and the, and the charismatic movement. The neo-evangelical movement turns out milquetoast Christians by the thousands. The charismatic movement turns out no Christians. They just turn out phonies, people who think they're saved. The charismatic movement, in my mind, is the most demon-possessed organization within Christianity that you're going to find today. And I believe that they, uh, uh, I believe that they are the counterpart to everything that's going on, and they will be, they will be, the, they will be the thing that uh, ushers in the Antichrist along with the neo-evangelicals, because none of them have any doctrine. And where the, the neo-evangelicals, you know, they, they have the salvation in, in many cases. They don't have any doctrine or any truth. And the charismatic have nothing but emotions. And they don't have any truth. They don't have any doctrine. They don't have anything. And uh, their salvation is based on their feeling. And that's not biblical salvation. So that is what has taken the place. And that's why America is in the mess that she's in. Because the Baptist church that was the mainstay coming up from the turn of the century, 
1900 to two, uh, 2000, uh, the, the turn, I mean the 1900s, the, the, coming up through that 19th, uh, 20th century, was the, with the Baptist Church. They went into apostasy. God brought them out through J. Frank Norris. And now it's come to the point where it's all dead. And all God has is going right back to what we talked about last Sunday today is the remnant. And that is us. And if you're, if you're a member of this church, not that this church is any special, it's only special in the fact that this is a remnant church. We are a throwback church to J. Frank Norris through Peter S. Ruckman to the Waldensians, the Albigensians, and the great Philadelphian church age. That's us. And other churches like us. And there's not a lot. But uh, you have a heritage. And my job, one of my jobs, as far as I'm concerned, is to keep that heritage alive and before you. And it's not popular today, because most people don't want it. But I don't really care if it's popular or not. It's whether you want it or not, that's just the way it's going to be. Because um, there's always, if I've learned this, There's always somebody out there. I might have to go, in, a, in, a, in, a, in my church scenario, today I think you've probably got to go, if you look at our own church and just in general, and I've watched track this for many, many years, you've got to go through 20 people coming to your church to keep one. And that's about the odds. Maybe a little less, but around 19 or 18, 19, 20. In other words, what I mean by that is 20 people will visit before in a process of time. Maybe you'll get two or three little state. I'm talking about an overall average because I keep the averages, the people that come. You're going to find it about it for every 20 people, 18 people that come, you're going to keep one of them. The rest of them are just window shopping or they don't want to do anything. And that's pretty much the way it is today. But that's fine with me because as long as there's somebody out there that wants the truth, then I'm going to leave the lights on that they can find it. And that's just my job. And uh, it doesn't bother me uh, how many come through, how many like it, how many don't, how many stay, how many leave. I'm not in in that business. I'm in the preaching the truth business. And I figure that if I preach the truth, then God will get the truth to the people that want it. He'll bring them where they need to be. My whole life's been that way. And I don't really know how to be any other way, and that's a, that's a good thing for me. So, well, that brings us up. We've come a long way in church history, and now you understand the whole concept from it. I hope you're a little richer from it, a little more appreciative of what you got it, and uh, I hope we can get it all together because I think that down the line in years to come, to have that not only on cassette or or tape, but to have it in some kind of handbook form would be valuable. So. Let's have a word of prayer, and this will be our last class. So, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, if a pastor dies without leaving somebody in his bed uh, to leave the church, how does the church elect who that pastor should be? Or how, how, what's that process? Well, every church follows a different process. Usually, in almost every case, the pastor has not prepared somebody to take his place. Because they're tied into a fellowship, they'll go back to that fellowship, and that fellowship will find them a pastor within their own group. Most times they don't look outside that fellowship because it's like your old high school. That's where you went to school, you know, and uh, and it, they, they're stuck in that rut. You know, every church is different, um, but in most Baptist churches, they'll look within their own fellowship grouping. Uh, every once in a while, maybe there'll be an associate pastor who will step up and take it. 
Most Baptist churches are not run New Testament-wise by the pastor. They're run by the deacons, which is very non-biblical. 